0: Welcome to Learnings from the Middle, a podcast where a product owner and a software engineer, longtime friends, occasional coworkers, and occasional halo opponents delve into their experiences and careers in the tech industry. All opinions are our own and not our employers or anyone else's. And I am one of your hosts. Uh, My name is Brian, I'm the software engineer half of this podcast. I've been an engineer for about 10 years and working across healthcare, security, delivery, logistics, and insurance. John, you wanna introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm John. I'm the product side of the equation. Uh, my background has been anywhere from anything to do with software delivery and project management. That's not the engineering side. Uh, project management, business analyst, product owner. Uh, really settling into the true product role at this point in time, though. Where and what we're we building, um, being that being that kind of roadmap determination of where where our products are we're heading. So uh, that's a little bit about me.
0: And tonight, uh, we're talking about a topic that could sound adversarial on the surface, <laughs> but it's meant be to good. be lighthearted. We're talking about spotting technical BS as a non technical person. And again, this is meant to be lighthearted because I picked the title as the technical person who occasionally throws out <laughs> some BS and would love to hear how John sees through it. So please take it in the lighthearted, I... friendly context that it's supposed to come off in.
1: Like, like all of our other ones to this point, as a podcast, have been discussions. I feel like this one might be an interview. I gotta be really, I, I'm like, we'll see. I'm nervous. We'll see how this one goes, but I, I'm excited. This is a fun topic for me yep. because I'm not technical. Again, going over my background, again, I've been in every role besides the engineering role itself. Now, with that much experience over the last 11, 12 years now, like I get to an architect level. I understand APIs. I understand tokenization. I understand data science and relational databases. Like I, I get the basics of ETL. Like I, I've been around those kind of things long enough to where I can talk with an engineer quite well, which is where this conversation is going to go. But I've never been an engineer. So this is an interesting one for me going through all those experiences of, wait a minute, how, when do the red flags go off? Like, when do I go? That doesn't sound
0: quite right. And I have a couple examples of when it's done to me or when this has happened to me where and, and I think that's where the lighthearted aspect of this comes in because usually engineers are not doing this kind of thing to be malicious it's unintentional or just something that you haven't had time to think through yet so the examples that I have are when someone called me out on a plan that wasn't thought through well enough and the value that I got from someone who was non-technical saying Hey, a plus b can't equal two and a half here, so uh, that's that's where the lighthearted part of it comes for me because it's something that I found value in someone non technical providing for me over time.
1: No, I'm I'm excited. I'm geared up for this conversation. I think we should start with your example. Like, just maybe, maybe keep it the keep it the let's let's (laughs) internalize first. But I think what's you've kind of already hinted on a good piece of this conversation though, and that's you almost have to talk from a level of generalizations and i know we're living in a culture in a world right now where generalizations are dicey and and you don't want to put people into a box without actually meeting them but there are still trends of people who choose to be an engineer and the way that engineers think there's still trends the way that people who don't want to sit down and be an engineer and um, they want to be in more of a product role like me or some other role. so um i think along with the lightheartedness just also understand that we're probably talking from levels of general general generalizations um, to where this generally fits an engineer's mindset or this generally fits a product person's mindset and that's not meaning that it's universal by any means or, or, or not you know you're not gonna mm-hmm. stumble across different perspectives even amongst those broad sweeping categories. Does
0: that make sense? Yep. Yeah, and it's it's true. Engineers tend to occasionally gloss over detail that we're not proud of not having thought of yet. <laughs> Fair uh so so my example, I think I brought it up on the podcast before, but this was uh, a few years ago now, so I feel safe talking about a a moderate level of detail. Uh, And I was on a team that maintained a staffing portal for warehouses, and we were rolling out an update to change the granularity of, for lack of a better term, the tracking that we did for our employees. And we depended on another service that provided that data and they had to change the format to go from a a rate that they were recording every five minutes or 20 or whatever it was down to like one or two minutes and it came out that there was a scaling problem with our service when we got that much more granular data so we were we were doing a proof of concept we had a lot of it sketched out and we were going to push it to production knowing that there were some risks involved without knowing exactly how many employees were going to be at a warehouse over time and all those things. So there were some unknowns about how this data was going to affect our system. And there were a bunch of engineers on the call and my manager, who had never been an engineer, he wasn't technical. And as we were describing our plans, where we were going to roll this out and we were going to do these tests and we were going to watch these metrics and then we had this fail safe if we needed to go back. My manager is IMing me off to the side saying, ask a question about step seven of the rollback. And I thought to myself, okay, I'll humor you, but this is clearly well thought out. We're fine. It's a long rollback process. What are you doing? All right, I'll ask this, but I'll I'll sound a little silly. And then I ask a question about step seven of the rollout process and everything comes crashing down. Mm. (laughs) And it became, in, in short order, it became obvious that the rollback, was going to take a long time, so the rollback involved generating or regenerating the data, rolling back the old system, and then regenerating the data and finding a way to overwrite. And a lot of it hadn't been thought through. And it was it was this moment where, as an engineer, I had heard these steps and they all made sense to me. And my manager, non technical, was sitting there going, "Something doesn't fit here." And uh, did he tell it you what was us. the red
1: flag? What was the red flag? What 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 <laughs> made him key in on it?
0: So I asked him afterwards, and he had this, this matrix of risk decision that he used. So he was saying, uh, it, the way he painted it for me was that he looked at it on two dimensions, and it's the level of detail of the engineers that are talking, and then the, the scale of the system, I think, was what he did. And this was a high-scale system, and the detail was low uh, on this one point. And that was why he started zeroing in on that. So he kind of had this heat map in his head of what he was looking at. And when there weren't enough, there wasn't enough information in step seven, and step seven involved all of the data for all of the warehouses, that was what mm-hmm. triggered him to really start poking at it and uncover this major gap in the plan. And it, in the end, we didn't need to roll back because knowing that we didn't have a rollback made us much more thorough on the load yep. testing and on the resilience of the system but if we had just gone ahead without knowing that we didn't need to roll back and then hadn't had a rollback we could have had a miserable week <laughs> so it really it really saved us from having just a terrible time and that's why i i say technical bs with kind of a lighthearted attitude because any time that that gets uncovered it's probably a non-technical person saving you time so that's my example
1: yep, yep. no and i think you the Level of detail that is being shared is exactly one of the key indicators that I have when I'm trying to get a – what am I listening to? What are the red flags for me as a non-technical person? And the level of detail – and it, and it's funny because based on the, just the, the exact point that we're talking about, it can be because it's given too much detail or too little detail. So it's not a one-size-fits-all, but in the context of a conversation, there are times to where all of a sudden something becomes very vague that shouldn't become very vague. Or something becomes very detailed where I can tell someone trying to talk around a non-technical person. And it's like, if you can't step back and put this into terms that I can understand and your default is to try to awe me with technical detail, you're not – you haven't think thought this through. You're just trying to talk around me. At least it's a possibility. And so the, the, it's, it's interesting that your manager at that time said the level of technical detail being discussed because I think that's a metric that can go either way depending on the situation.
0: I had never, you know, I had never pieced that together, but that's probably what he meant by the heat map, where Mm -hmm. it's either too much or too little detail. And the too little detail is super intuitive to me, because if you don't, if you haven't thought it through, then you're not prepared to talk in specifics, but too much is really an interesting aspect of that. (sighs) And again,
1: talking in generalities, let's go on the two little first. Like, again, I still think someone not technical like me, you still have a responsibility to know your system. That's not going to be a day one thing, but you need to know the boxes. And I had a great mentor when I first got into product that always talked about being a box level architect as a product manager, as a product owner. Um, And it stuck with me. It's like, I at least need to know the systems and I need to know the roles and responsibilities of those systems. So even if it's a system, it's not enough just to know. It's like data is the easiest example. Data comes in. Something happens. What's the something in English hap- that happens in that system? And then it comes out and it goes to the next system. Like the flow of data is the easiest way to describe that. So if a plan skips a box or skips a function, there's not enough detail in it. And that's something that I can do a lot of times in like my problem-solving brain. When I try to figure out what's wrong, I'm going through those boxes. I'm going through those steps. I'm going through those logical moves. I'm not going through commas and colons and syntax. I'm going through data comes in or this comes in, it takes this action, this is the output, I have to have that output accurate before I go to the next one. Now to get that accurate output, there may be thousands of lines of code to get from point A to point B that I will never appreciate as a non-technical person, but I know I need this input and this output. And if your plan doesn't cover that or doesn't have enough detail to cover that, that's the red flag, for me. that's not enough detail. The too much detail is when I start drilling in on something. So I say, wait a minute, you're missing something here. And immediately someone dives ten levels deep that they know I'm not gonna follow. And and it's again, it's not always intentional. And it's I don't even, I don't think people are trying to do it maliciously, but it's a defensive mechanism. It is, I know this better than you, let me prove to you that I know this better than you, and I'm gonna all of a sudden talk really fast, or I'm gonna talk really technical, I'm gonna talk by you because I know that if I go to this level, you can't throw the BS flag. And my response to that will be, that's risky. I'm not engineering but i'm not dumb if you've even told this to me before if you can't break it down into a level that i understand at my level it probably means that you haven't actually thought through it and so there is a level of expectation that i expect that you'd be able to zoom out of the detail and be able to put it in english for me and if you can't do that i'm very concerned because as a product person i'm still the one that's determined i shouldn't say this, this is a Oftentimes, I'm still the one that's writing the requirement of what it's supposed to do. So if you can't explain to me how your technical system is meeting my requirements, we we're missing something, or at least it's a very strong red flag that I'm going to make you come at it from five different angles until you've explained it to a way that I think we're on the same page. That's a little bit of a rant, so, but those are my thoughts. No, <laughs> I, I have
0: questions. I'll I'll make one short statement, and the talking too fast thing is really interesting because. As an engineer, I've always found that I get a ton more credibility when I talk slowly. So mm-hmm. if I start talking too fast, people assume that I'm nervous or I'm agitated or I'm skipping over stuff. And it's probably the scenario you're describing. But if I slow down and I talk at almost a laborious pace, then people believe me easier. Um, I'm trying to learn so how the... to do it.
1: I mean, we are even here in this <laughs> podcast, I get going, I get talking fast, I get excited, like... People do take you more seriously, and it also forces you to think through your words more the more you slow down. So, I mean, it's one of the side benefits that we get from doing this podcast and with our audience is I get to learn how to be a better communicator, and slowing down is a big part of that because speaking fast, even though you may think you're articulating perfectly, you're communicating something unintentionally in that pace.
0: Mm -hmm. So the question I have for you on that scenario is – The stereotype I would have from the engineering side is that it's intimidating for a product owner to have to do that technical inspection. And as an engineer, I have imposter syndrome plenty when I'm talking to another engineer and I don't understand everything they're saying. Mm -hmm. Do you ever have that, where in those moments you think, I'm just not getting it and it's safe, but I just don't understand?
1: Yes and no. So yes, there are times to where I feel like man i'm the dense one in the room um and but that usually isn't the case and i don't know if that should be attributed to arrogance or pride or something like that but i would say my history backs me up that more times than not when my spidey sense goes off and says wait a minute something was missed or i'm not getting this and the fact that i'm not getting this is a red flag um that's that's usually been right um, when I feel the other way is usually when I'm knowing I'm going against me. It's someone I trust, someone I've worked with. It's you and it's been you in cases where it's just like, I know you're not just trying to rush. I know you're not trying to cowboy code. I know you're not just trying to pull one over on me. I legitimately am not following this. I don't think this is right, but I'm starting to doubt myself. And I'm not sure if I'm the crazy one here. So there are definitely times where I feel like I'm overstepping. And I'll usually preface that statement. Then it's just like, I'll say something like, I'm willing to be wrong here, or I'm willing to let this one go, but, and that'll usually be my last attempt to try to articulate what doesn't sound right. If at that mm-hmm. point I've tried three or four times, I'm still being told to go away, like, no, you don't get it, I'll usually concede, and I just hope I don't get proved right two weeks later when we deploy it or when it gets QA'd or something like that, you know?
0: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking back to the times we worked together, and this might be too specific, but there was a, a time when we were talking about email and getting email mm-hmm. out of a system. And in the moment, I didn't even realize I had done it or I didn't think it through in that way, but I pulled the, I'm a technical expert, just listen to me that this is complicated card. Yep. And, uh, and then you called me on it later on and you said, you know, it's, it's fine, we're friends and I trust you, but y- you pulled the tech card <laughs> on me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I think that probably degraded my credibility in some ways where it's, you're right, if I can't explain it in a way that it that makes sense to a product owner and I can't define the terms clearly enough for a product person to understand and follow along, then I probably don't have the understanding about it that I do, that I need to, to make a good decision. And in that case, it was true where I was like scrambling to remember all of mm-hmm. the email, DKIM, <laughs> distributed whatnot and it would have taken me a little bit of fumbling to explain it better so even if it is good intentioned that's probably a pretty good indicator of if somebody does play that card then either they don't have time or they don't have all the understanding they need
1: and there's a time and place like don't get me wrong if you're in the middle of an operations issue or production issue like there are times to tell nosy people like me to go away or control freaks like me to go away and it's not my my it's not my lane all the time um but product owner isn't just product a product owner is ah, I mean 33 percent. it's part product of roadmap it's part designer and marketing it's part engineer and architect it's part uh project manager like a good product person has to be the one in the middle of all those things i have to be able to go to design person and say i know you're the expert in design but this isn't quite meeting what i think the user needs for these reasons engineering can come and say well here's our solution i can go I get what you're going, but that solution doesn't quite meet. And I like, I, I have to be able to drive into all those things to where I'm never going to be the expert. A lot of times except maybe on the customer and the market um, direction, but I have to be able to have those conversations with those different groups and, and be able to push back a little bit. And if you can't break it down to the level of sharing, uh, of showing me and explaining to me how it's fitting into the project or the product or the initiative or the feature, whatever term you use in your company, there's something missing. So Mm -hmm. there's a time and a place, I guess what I'm trying to say, but by and large, I would say, I'm never going to sit down and code review your code, not a desire, not an expertise. I'm not going to go to that level of detail, but I do know how an API works and I do know how data flows. And I do know what my user, what usually what I'm asking for, what the outcome needs to be. And if you can't show me how what you're doing is achieving that, or how the change you made is an okay change compared to what I was asking for to being delivered, then we just have a problem. We we have to talk Mm -hmm. through it, so.
0: So let me ask a question before the one that I have written down. Mm -hmm. When do you offer follow-up offline versus let's hammer this out in front of people? Because a lot of times these conversations are in a review, they're in front of a group. When do you offer let's diagram this together afterwards versus hashing it out with 10 people in the audience?
1: If, if it's coming up with 10 peoples in the audience, maybe this is a control freak nature again, but I wasn't close enough before it got to that point. Like at the first time I'm hearing about it to question it is when it's being presented to others. And it's particularly if it's on my scrum team or one of the scrum teams I'm I, I'm, I, I'm proud to POing for. I wasn't close enough up to that point. So mm-hmm. um, granted, I know some places do like uh, sprint reviews uh, in front of a whole group, like you put all 10 scrum teams and everybody does a sprint review at the same time. And everybody's what everybody's doing, and maybe that is the first time the PO is seeing, uh, you know, the, the code and and things like that. But I don't know. I usually would think that I'm going to find out about it before it gets into that situation. As far as even I, I, most of the time I see a sprint team as a unit. So there's very little things I won't bring up in a, in a sprint team, in a scrum team. Um, sprint scrum team, I guess interchangeable depending on where you've been, but for a scrum team, um, I'm usually, if I have five engineers, I'm, I'm usually not going to be afraid about hashing it out in front of five engineers. Cause the whole point of a scrum team is to get different perspectives and have all that expertise and have everybody in each other's business, delivering the same code, writing the same kind of code, co- you know, co-developing, okay. co-partnering. So, um, I prefer to have a very open scrum team. If it starts getting heated or personal, that's where I'll usually cut it off. If it starts getting to where like our emotions are ruling this more than the topic, then we need a break, then we need to pull it off to the side. But if it's just hashing through, is this doing what I'm asking to, I- I'm not too shy about airing that out, I guess.
0: Interesting. Okay. And I, you're differentiating between larger team presentation outwards mm-hmm. the from the unit of the team and yep. it digging into it and really having those conflicts or those discussions, maybe not conflicts, but the conversation inside of the team itself.
1: That's that's the way I come at it is again, I really like an open scrum team. Now, if it comes to like, you know, me talking with the engineering manager or the tech lead on the team, um, or, you know, someone that kind of has more of that senior role, if we're doing more, you can't waste a whole scrum teams on every conversation. So I'm not saying the scrum team comes into everything, but the scrum team comes into most things. Like I really like mm-hmm. the scrum team operating as a unit and very limited amount of individual exposure to things. There's, mm-hmm. there's caveats and exceptions to everything, but yeah, team, team conversations are pretty key and there's not much that I'm afraid to, to call out an air through that because a lot of times I'm, you're also asking collaborations. If, if I'm questioning something by golly, I hope I'm not the only one questioning it. Like if I'm questioning something, another engineer is either going to chime in and go, Oh dude, you're hundred percent. Right. Or, Hang on, man. He actually has this, you know, give him another five minutes to walk through it and we'll come back. Like mm-hmm. other people in the in the room can also help be that moderating voice instead of me just butting my head against somebody else's opinion. Because then it just gets defensive. I'm defensive because mm-hmm. I'm questioning. They're defensive because I'm questioning their code and their solution. Like the team dynamic in that scrum actually I feel like diffuses a lot of those conversations. My experience. It doesn't always work that way, but what I've seen most.
0: It depends on team culture. It but really I... Does. I'm strongly in favor so that the facts are important of the system we're building, how it fits together, what we're doing. And that's good to hash out. It's good for everybody to be on the same page of the details of how something works inside of the scrum unit. And then there's also the cultural aspect where it should be very safe for a product owner to inspect and investigate and interrogate a solution. And that shouldn't be a controversial thing if, and I I think I've said this before, but if I, as an engineer, can't persuade you as a non-technical person that it's the right idea, then either I'm not doing a very good job explaining it or I've got a bad idea, but I should be able to get you on board with what I think is a good plan. And that Mm -hmm. should be a safe conversation. That should be something senior, principal, junior, whatever engineers are comfortable having.
1: Yep. And again, I guess I would just say, even for me, like, I, when you get in the middle of those conversations, you think you're just having a conversation, but I think it's a time we had to be more keyed in than ever than how you're presenting yourself. And it's something I struggle with because I can't tell you how many times I thought I was just having a, a direct conversation and not even direct as in I'm intentionally being direct, but directing is just asking pointless questions, trying to figure it out, trying to move the design forward. I thought I was just having a direct design conversation and others were thinking I was coming off as aggressive or overeager or correcting. And it's like, no, gosh darn it, that's just how I think and how I process it. I'm just not thinking in the minute that I should be being nice and polite and using other things. And that does give me a right to railroad people. Um, but I think it is just a key point that when you're having those conversations, like you're the best at this, I think, or of the people I know is giving people the benefit of the doubt because you're going to have people that just say things in, norm- like in a different way just assess their personality and you can't read that into a and escalate the conversation simply because you're going back and forth on a technical dec- a conversation or a pushback on a technical solution that's a great point that tone that
0: it, and it's it's something we have touched on that i think matters a lot to both of us is the relationship maintenance inside of this very potentially very conflict-ridden conversation where one group or side is trying to call out the other group for not having enough detail and taking a risk that's unnecessary and it's important to do the maintenance for the relationship to say it's not that I think you're a bad person or a bad engineer. I don't think this solution separate from your value as a person is a good idea. And it's a, a tricky thing to say and a balance that you have to strike.
1: And I'll own the missed requirement. I'll own the scope creep allegations. Like it, like a lot of times I'm willing to do that. Like if you're, if your solution isn't meeting what I need, a lot of times it is because it's just a miscommunication. I assumed a level of knowledge or I made an assumption around what you understood. I didn't communicate. clearly. A lot of times there is a certain hundred percent. There's a, there's a level of responsibility that comes back to the product person and how you framed it up. There are other times it's very hard to be a product person and go, I got you 98% of the way there. And I expected a 2% of assumption and you're, coming back at me because I missed 2% of this. Like, I can't define everything 100%. I do need to expect a level of partnership and teamwork and thought. And that's that's never going away. That's always going to be a little bit of tension between um, a business and a de- engineering or a product and a developer, like however you phrase that up. Like there's there's going to be a natural tension there. But as a product owner, I'm usually willing to take a little bit of the responsibility if it wasn't clear up front or if you went and started building something and I'm having to come back and go, wait, 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 wait. We're not, we're not there yet. One thing we haven't talked about, we talked a lot about uh tone we talked about speed we talked about too much information too little information options options is another big red flag for me if you come to me as an engineer with only one option i'm immediately throwing the bs flag i am immediately throwing the bs flag i will have so much more respect for me if you say dude there's two ways of doing this please oh please oh please oh please, don't make me justify why i'm telling you that we're doing it this way like i have so much more respect for that to me that if you come tell me and tell me that there's just one way of doing it I have been around the block enough times. I know there's never one way of solving this thinking problem with an engineer. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's like
0: saying you're building a Lego set and there's only one way that bricks fit together. <laughs> you know, it's you code. Yeah. It's everything happens. Yep.
1: Yep. You it's code. It's flexible. In engineering we're learning more and more. Like it's 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 a matter of money, it's a matter of tooling, it's a matter of resourcing. Like you can do almost anything. With mm-hmm. software wise, you can do like you can, you literally just can. It's a matter of how much you're willing to spend or how much long mm-hmm. you're willing to take or how many people are you willing to hire. Uh, but you can do almost anything. So if you come to me with one option and only one option, I automatically know you're trying to work through me. You're, 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 uh-huh. you're trying to lock me in. And I am a rebel and I hate feeling like I'm fenced in. Don't make me feel fenced in. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would so much rather have the conversation of, dude, there's two ways of doing this. There's three ways of doing this. Two of them are really bad ways of doing it that we just really don't want to do. And I know you're trying to save money, and I know you're trying to do this, but you're going to have these XYZ consequences. I'm asking you as an engineer with my expertise to take my recommendation to number one. Mm -hmm. I would so much rather have that conversation. I'll be so much more trusting of that conversation than if you're like, dude, don't tell the product owner about options two and three because then he'll want to go with the cheap one and we'll never do anything else. Like, just, just tell him there's one option. I know you're lying. (laughs) (laughs)
0: can i can i make two throwaway jokes yes yes so the the first line that i use because i over the course of my career i've often been asked but could we and the answer is always and you know the could we is always this thing that i really don't want to do and the answer is always we almost anything is possible if we decide it's a good idea and it's if we we (laughs) decide (laughs) good idea uh and then the other um the other thing that I've learned, it's a little bit less throwaway jokey, but um, feedback that I got was don't just present options with no preference, present the options and say which one you recommend and why, and then you can talk about trade-offs. So that's the other throwaway joke is, and maybe I've already said this on the podcast, but the only true answer in software engineering is it depends. And you know, if you're working with a good or a bad engineer based on whether or not they can tell you what it depends on. And I think that's what you're echoes, what you're saying, where if you just present one option, it's clear that you've left some off, you know, it, hidden away somewhere. But if you present all the options and you say, it may look like this one is good, but it's not. And you don't want to do it because X, Y, Z and here are the offs we would be making. Then it's easier to easier yep. to build trust and move forward together.
1: Makes sense. And I, and I 100% agree. Like again it goes let's talk about natural tensions again like there is a natural tension between um an engineer who has chosen a career to go build things with code it's you know it's they're they're still they're still builders they're building things they're creating things and they want to create and they their their code they want to create their feature with craftsmanship with 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 pride like they don't like I enjoy woodworking. I enjoy doing things on the side. If you tell me to go make a table, I'm going to get a table saw. I'm going to get a stain. I'm going to get sandpaper. I'm going to get joining. I'm going to get glue. I'm going to get routers. If you say, go make a table, here's some duct tape and some plywood, I'm going to be mad. Like, that's not how I want to build a table. Now, there are times where duct tape and plywood will do the job I need it to, but that's not how I want to do it. So I want to be, as a product, I want to be empathetic to that. Like, I am telling you the thing that you take pride in sometimes I'm asking you to do it the cheaper way I'm asking you to do it the faster way. And that's not enjoyable as an engineer. And I don't want to be, that's not throwaway. Like I, that's not negligible, but there are still times where that is the request. The request is I don't need this to be foolproof. I don't need this to be rock solid. I don't need this to last three years. I need this to last six months. Like, and yes, maybe you're on call twice in that six months, but I'm not asking you to be on call twice for the next five years every month. Like, There are Mm -hmm. things on the business side or a user side that perfect software doesn't exist. It's too expensive. So while I, as a craftsman, I don't want to ask you to do shoddy work and I need to be able to have the dialogue with you around what can we get by with sometimes? What corners can we cut without hurting ourselves? And I'm going to ask for not the pristine. I'm not going to ask for the Cadillac. I'm not going to ask for hundred percent because it's just too expensive, but I don't want to do you a disservice and not give you the ability to do your job well. And that's just... It's a natural tension that's never going to be one hundred percent one way or the other, and I think when both sides understand that, you can have much more honest conversations.
0: The thing, the aspect of that interaction that I am trying to get better at is highlighting when it's a deceptively cheap solution, and there is a longer term business cost that comes with doing it the, the cheap or the bad way, and it's it's hard because it feels a little bit disingenuous as an engineer to say if you don't give me time to do the logging very well, it's gonna cost X number of more hours per bug that I have to solve and that costs you this many dollars and you're kind of making up numbers. But if you can represent it well and you can articulate why what looks like it may be cheap is going to cost more in the long run, then you're putting it in, you're comparing apples to apples again. You can say, it looks like you're gonna save 20% on the project here, but in reality, you're gonna pay 45 more percent when we have to do this thing that's more expensive for maintenance later.
1: And what's fun about being in the middle, you know, this learning from the middle theme is we've been around and long. We've been around long enough to where we have examples. Like we 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 can pull out examples of like, yeah, I cut that corner. It cost me six months later, and this is why I'm not willing to do it again. And if you tell me I have to, fine. But then I'm asking for half a sprint, two sprints from now to come back and fix it. Or you know, you just mm-hmm. you're able to have those conversations. Like, if it's it's not this clean, but if you have the room to have the conversations, even on these technical BS. So that I was recalling it just for tongue-in-cheek even on those technical disagreements on where non-technical person is asking questions like if you're having the right conversation and you're all trying to get to the same place very rarely is it going to be one person having to make the decision it's usually going to be the team coming to a consensus of okay I get it from both sides um, mm-hmm. so I think the good conversations the, the conversations that have ended the way this is like man that was worth it Are the ones to where I didn't have to come in and say, sorry, I don't care. This is how we're doing it. We've debated this for three hours. We just need to move on. We can't keep debating this. I'm making an executive decision. Mm -hmm. There's times that has to happen, but very rare. And the much better way is when we can all go, oh, okay, this makes sense. This is why we're doing Mm -hmm. it this way. And I think that's usually the way it ends up.
0: Yeah. If you've got the right people in the room,
1: if you got the right people, but it's tough.
0: Yep. Uh, So when my next question is when do you ask through yourself? When do you ask a question about a gap that a technical gap, technical BS, yourself versus triggering it through an engineer, through an IM or an email or a follow up after the call? When do you own the skepticism versus expressing it through somebody who's on your team or an engineer on your on your group?
1: Uh, I'm not afraid to be an idiot, so I usually don't feel the need to buffer it. It's there's two situations where I buffer it maybe three let me let me try to think through these in order let's let's start with two and maybe it turns into three um one is if it's my scrum team working with another scrum team um and they've already been co-coding or co-designing for a while now and me jumping into that and saying okay guys start back at the top and walk me through it is just not helpful if i just have a question or concern i double check this i'm not so sure about this assumption um, I'll work through my engineer who I should have a really good in- relationship with and let them kind of bring that back. And I have a trust factor that he's going to honor that. So if it's engineering to engineering time where, like, you haven't even really presented the design yet fully or it's just still in that design phase of what is the technical solution going to be, I-, I-, I really I really want to give the engineers the space to come forward with the solution before I preempt it and try to say, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right, unless, it's r- unless I'm hearing rumblings or something really off the rails. Um, the other one is mentoring opportunities. Um, if 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 it's if it's a time to where I think, hey, you actually asked me this question. It would look really good for you to, if, for me not to ask it. You should ask this question, or vice versa. Like, hey, I think he needs help. Can you ask this question to help steer it? Like, so there are times where strategically mentoring a junior engineer or mentoring someone through like the the more soft skills of the positions that we're in, where I might try to ask for an engineer. But if we're just, again, going back to that scrum team setting or even a multi-scrum team setting where we're in multiple, we're, we're still in a team setting of how are we going to do this? I, I'm usually not afraid to go, does not make sense? Like, mm-hmm. wait, hang on. I'm lost. I, 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 I'm not following. I, I usually don't feel the need to push that through an engineer. Mm-hmm. Does that surprise yes. you? Or where, what are the situations that you think I, I should have or or you've seen people go through the engineer more?
0: Those two make a lot of sense to me when you don't want to be disruptive and when it's beneficial to somebody else to ask the question. The And the second one, there's another lens for that that occurs to me where if I know that I want to cue someone up to hit one, so to speak, where yep. I think there's a gap and I don't think that I have the clout or the personal credibility to get traction on it, then sometimes I'll ask a bit of a prep question and then let either a product owner or a manager or somebody who's higher up come in and say, I would like to hear more about that. And that's kind of the a little bit of the mentoring where you're mm-hmm. sort of trading off credibility and you're, you're, you're bouncing off of two people to get the effect that you want. But occasionally I'll cue somebody up to either ask through me or give me more room to ask or take a question and say that they care about it too. If I don't think that I have the credibility yet, or if I think they might be able to gain some credibility from me echoing their question, that kind of thing. So I think that's the other credibility is the other time when I might ping pong that back and forth.
1: That that kind of hits on another piece of it. It made me think of it. Maybe this was the third one that I, I had tickling around the back of my brain. Um, there are times I'll wait to ask the question. And what I mean by that is I, it doesn't have to come from me. Um, like, so if, If we're having a conversation about something and I have a question pop up in my head, I think I'm finally learning that I don't have to blurt that question out right away. (laughs) Like it may be a great question. It may, I may be curious about it, but why not give somebody else the space to ask that question? Like I'm in a more senior level now to where me asking every question and babysitting the whole process doesn't help anybody else grow or figure it out. And I don't mean that from, I always have the answers. I'm always going to figure it out, but there is times where i'm learning to where they'll get there they don't need me to preempt the conversation like sure we've talked about step one and step two i know what three four and five are can we just talk about step six you you don't need me to drive us to step six let us walk through step three and step four and step five and let the kind of the conversation naturally go at the pace that is maybe more comfortable for the the broader team. And I think the same thing is true with questions and and when to jump in. I think there's if you get to the end and it hasn't been asked, I'm still gonna ask it. Or if it gets to the end and I feel like we're going way off, I'm still gonna jump in. Or if we're gonna about ready to go on a half hour segue and nobody wants to waste a half hour in a segue because one person didn't understand the assignment. Like mm-hmm. I'm more than happy to jump in at those points. But in general, there are times where it's like, I definitely have had a tendency to preempt the conversation or to force it. And where, why am I asking about security? The security guy's Mm -hmm. on the phone. Let him ask the security question. I may know him. I may be aware of him, but why aren't they coming from the security guy? And again, Mm -hmm. if the security guy never talks up, speaks up, then I'll ask my security concerns and my privacy concerns. Mm -hmm. But why am I taking the first one at that? Why not give him the space to jump in or her the space to jump in and ask those questions? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And as a, thinking back and I'm, I was putting myself in the position, but thinking back to being a team lead at different points in my career, that's a really important moment as someone who is lending authority and credibility and responsibility to somebody else to say, I am here. If you need me, if you want me to step in and try and clarify, I will, but if you want to run this and you feel good, then I will let you take it. And I will wait until you escalate to me or wait until you ask me to step in. And I think that's a very difficult thing to do is to know when you don't have to be the one talking and when you can do more good by being there and expressing confidence in the person doing the talking by just listening to them and supporting them and what they're doing.
1: I do think it's trickier for the product role a little bit in that though, because not always, but engineers often... It depends on where you're at. This might be an overgeneralization, but engineers are often specialized in what they're currently working on. They're not trying to work on five different pieces of the application. They're responsible for a piece of it, and that's where they're specialists at. As a product owner, again, I go back to the concept earlier. Uh, I am half marketing. I am half engineer architect. I am half product. I am half customer service. I am half training I know that's adding up to like 300%, but you get the idea. Like you you wear so many different hats at different times to where I do need to be aware around security and privacy concerns and what questions need to be addressed there. I do need to be aware of the impact to the call center and what's going to happen there. I do need to be aware of usability testing and ADA. But if I have the marketing person and the designer on the call, I need to give them the space to ask those questions, even though I know, even though I'm aware they are still more qualified in it than I am, even though I've had to dabble in it because of my role as a product owner. So I think that's just another space, and it's true for engineers of again, to where I don't want to preempt my engineers because I've been mostly on the back end side and I've been more technical than most people. Like I say, I still say I'm not technical, and people will look at me point blank and go like. John, you're technical. And I was like, I still don't feel technical. <laughs> you know. But I'm t- I'm technical enough to know a lot of basic questions we should be asked. Most of the time, I shouldn't be asking those from my engineers. I need to get my space to the engineers, space to, the engineers to ask those questions. So,
0: As always, I have two thoughts. Uh, yep. So technical is a spectrum, right? Where it's <laughs> it's really just a matter of where you draw your black box. And yep. the myth of the full stack engineer is silly to me because I can't explain to you all of the cabling of the internet. And it just depends on where you draw your black box. I have black boxes that are a mystery to me and I claim to be very technical. <laughs> so it's just, <laughs> just a matter of what you choose not to understand. Um, so thinking back again to being a team lead, I think yeah. the slight difference for an engineer is that when I defer authority or involvement, it's usually because I am the expert, but I'm trying to give somebody else space to step in and step up and own an aspect of the product that we work on. So I can think of a time at a the healthcare company that we both worked at where there was a new pipeline. It was on a DevOps team, and we had built out an automation pipeline to create a couple of web services. And I designed it from scratch. I helped set it up. I helped stand it up. And then there were some uh, changes that needed to happen to it. And I got invited to a meeting to talk about it, along with the engineer who was taking ownership. And I replied to the invite, and I said, uh, I have a conflict. I will not be there. Uh, I've chatted with the individual who's taken ownership and they're comfortable. They'll escalate to me or they'll bring me in if they need anything. And it was in the moment, it was very humbling for me because I wanted to be there. I was proud of what I had done, but it was way better for the team for me to express confidence in the person taking it yep. and to, to defer to them and say, I trust you to find all of the technical BS and find, like dig through all the edge cases and bring me in if you need me, but I'm not going to override you this way.
1: I think it's funny. Like, let's. I know we're probably getting a little long here, but the the, the other way, though, I think I just had a great example of this this last week. And again, it's fresh enough. I need to be generic, but if I have a good relationship with you as an engineer, I'm also going to go to bat for your suggestions. I'm not just going to push back on your suggestions. It, I'm it, if you and I have the confidence level to have these conversations and actually be on the same page, I'm going to be able to back you up when other people are not hearing you and listening to you um the example i have just recently is it was one scrum team to another it was my engineers that on my scrum team that found a cascade an issue code was pushed um to fix one thing and the downstream impact started cascading and our team noticed the downstream impacts and we had to push back on that team to revert their code um, they did. The, the team was great. This is, again, no malice here. The team was great. They, they listened to us and they heard us say, ah, red flag, revert your code, please. And they reverted their code. Two weeks later, though, um, the product owner from the other side, again, who is a SME, subject matter expert in, what they, in their product, came back after doing thorough analysis and said, we determined there was no impact from this. We don't we don't agree with your guys' assessment. We determined that there was no impact from this. Um, and again, product people can do this as well big, huge spreadsheet, 50 columns wide, drop it on, like, here's my proof that we that nothing was broke because of this. I spent hours looking into this. Um, we don't think there's anything wrong here. And so now I have my engineer, my my lead engineer saying, this broke, there's a problem here. And I have another product owner who I have a tremendous respect for who's been bringing me up to speed at my new company saying there's no problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I had the conversation with my engineer. And my engineer's like, I think I'm losing my mind because he also has respect for this product owner. He's like, "But this, this is broken. Like this, this is happening here, and this is where it's at." I went back on the side, talking about going to the side instead of going in the group discussion. I went back to the product owner on the side. I said, "I, I, as a, I, I'm an emotional. I wear my heart on my sleeve kind of guy." I said, "I feel stuck here." I said, "I'm between two experts, and I know I am." I said, my engineer is telling me this is an issue and this is where. And we, and it was the same exact words he had used. We'd provide the examples. we had provided where it's an issue. I just said, this makes sense to me that this is causing an issue. I can't go look at the spreadsheet. I can't go look at the database and be able to prove this the same way you can. I said, but based on my understanding, we're undercharging, overcharging by X percent. Um, I got it. I am 10 minutes later after uh, I already looked at this, but fine, I'll go look again. And it wasn't that quite that exasperated, but you could tell I was pushing. You could tell I was pushing. 10 minutes later, the teary emoji, oh my gosh, the like, I'm so sorry. Like, there was the issue. So if as much as I will come back and push my engineers, if you can explain it to me, if if you can say, This is what it's doing, the code is black and white. It does what you code it to do. Like, if you've looked at it and you can tell me what it's doing, and I understand the outputs, the inputs and outputs, and I'm like, oh dude, if you're taking this calculation and applying it to this number, you're totally gonna get the wrong output, and it makes sense to me. I can then go back. That for you in those other situations. So both pushing back and calling technical BS, but also being able to advocate for your solution because we are on the same page with what it means. Long example, but I just I think it's important to say that it goes both ways.
0: That's terrific. And maybe the friendlier title for the podcast would have been spotting not spotting technical not BS. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great.
1: Everybody knows what we're talking about with this title. Everybody knows what we're talking
0: about. So so the next thing I was going to ask is worst thing you prevented. Do you think that's the worst? uh worst oh no disaster oh, no. you prevented okay
1: that would have just been really frustrating because it would have still came to light in the balance sheets you know two weeks later okay. and it would have been relooked at all over again um it was really hard though going back to that one for a second because it wasn't our responsibility like it was outside our scrum team we were pointing at a different mm-hmm. team and even the downstream impact that we noticed wasn't even impacting our team so it was mm-hmm. one of those ones where we were getting really close to saying we've shot it from the rooftops we've done everything we can like fine let it let it go and we'll figure mm-hmm. it out later but they just didn't right you don't want to do that to the company you don't want to do that to another team but yep um worst thing i prevented or i've i've helped push back on
0: i have an example ready so if you need a minute
1: yeah yeah go for yours first i I think i have a couple but go for yours first
0: so i'll i'll have you throw the elmo card enough let's move on if i get too deep into the details here because this was a twisty one to get into but uh this was a while back we had a service that used a caching layer And we had added some features to it. We were overwhelming the caching layer. And we could see the caching layer fall over and stop responding to requests and stop doing anything. And then you've got all the latency and whatnot. And I was on vacation. And I came back to look at the plan. I came back from vacation and looked at the issue started before I left. And it was getting wrapped up when I showed up from vacation again. And I was looking at the plan to mitigate it. And was reading the way that they had scaled the cluster. And immediately had some some concerns because of the specific client we were using to that caching cluster it was uh redis and we were using a certain kind of redis client and what they had done was add nodes to the cluster instead of add i'm going to get the terms wrong because it's been a while but they they were adding nodes to each cluster instead of adding more clusters and so i knew it was it felt not right to me and i talked to the engineer who had designed the solution asked him the kinds of tests he had run and then when it was able to pull up some of the metrics from his test to prove that uh, it was something else, like his load test wasn't replicating what was in production. And if we had deployed it, we would have had the exact same outage within like 12 hours or something. And it was that was the one sev one that I experienced at that job where my boss's boss's boss was on the call until we mm-hmm. had it fixed. So it would have been another sev one if that hadn't happened. But just looking at the the test that he had done and glancing at the metrics that he had checked Knowing that there were a couple other metrics that were going to be interesting, let me uh, kind of highlight the gap in the testing and help keep a second SEV1 from happening from the exact same service.
1: Wow, I was too busy listening to yours that I, that I didn't spend any time thinking about <laughs> mine. Um, I'm trying to be a better engaged listener, Brian. Um, so... You're great. <laughs> I think most of mine are just around missed requirements. It, it really I, I need to get better at giving specific examples, um, which is what I'm trying to rack my brain on. Like one I had is we were trying to build a generic API. I It was a service that we did enough things like it with different partners. I was tired of having a custom API for each partner. Um, and so I wanted to standardize the API. And there was a little bit of a stretch. Like there are things like this partner is gonna use these five fields. This partner's gonna use these six fields. Like I, I know I'm making it a bit chunky, but that's still gonna be easier for us to maintain in this stack um than it was to be spinning off several different variations or or having to spin up new instances um or new um new apis and uh it just the the technical design i kept getting back was very specific to only their solution that was right in front of us at the moment it was just like you were giving me exactly what i need for this partner but we have 10 other partners i'm asking you to look at as a template and make sure we're considering these kind of partners as well. I know that's not what this partner needs, but I need it to meet these other ones. And again, that goes into that gray area. Like, do I go do the analysis on the APIs and directly dictate what those should be? Do I have the technical person who's more familiar with the um, with the um, technical fields that are going back and forth, not just the data fields that I care about? Like, it was it was one of those gray areas. It was very hard to define. Like, if we look at these 10 examples, what's a singular way to solve all 10 of them? It was it's a little vague. Um, but the solution I was getting was still very specific, and I knew it was very specific, and so um, it didn't save us at the moment. But we were able to spin up two additional partners before I moved on from that on the on the one that we built. So on mm-hmm. the on the set of APIs that we built to be generic. So I think that was the one that just going back and forth enough on to to try to save us time in the future, not just avoid wasting time now. So.
0: That's a good but insight. But a lot of times that... that
1: it's 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 defining the requirements. Sorry, I cut you off.
0: That's a good insight that it doesn't always have to be getting it exactly the way that you want it. You can mm-hmm. still improve things and make it better for the team, getting incremental improvements in a lot of those situations. So it's not all or nothing. It can be a, a gray area of some good yep. is better than none. Yep. So what's the worst attempt to help a tech team that didn't pan out? I have seven, so I could <laughs> give plenty of examples for this.
1: Mine is just really easy because, again, I keep going back to the same theme on this podcast of just having to wear so many hats. So there's times where I should just shut my trap. And it's I think I'm being helpful and directing like, hey, I kind of know what I'm talking about. So this is a solution I think I need. And my suggested solution being taken as requirements. Um, Like when I'm talking on the tech design piece of it, I'm more talking as a participant in the conversation of engineers. And I'm outside of my bounds when i'm entering into that conversation and people are still seeing me wearing my full product hat of defining requirements um i i i it was misunderstood between us what i was doing and so i ended up accidentally defining a technical solution it worked it was fine but it wasn't it wasn't the best technical solution i'm not technical i'm not an engineer like there's definitely better ways i've done that solution um and that was just not again i was it was a team that i hadn't worked with a lot i didn't have all the personal dynamics they didn't know me as well i didn't know them as well so that was just a place where again my tone probably was wrong i thought i was designing they heard dictating um and it just it wasn't what we were we we're not on the same page with what the circumstances of that conversation were and so i dictated a technical solution as a product owner and that's never what you want to do
0: that's mm-hmm. never
1: what i should do so as much as i can ask questions as much as I can be part of the conversation at times, I need to be very careful that the technical solution still needs to come from the engineers. And that is a line that I shouldn't cross. As much as I'm gonna ask questions, as much as I'm gonna make sure the technical solution aligns up to what I need it to do, it's not my technical solution and I need to be careful with that.
0: Mm -hmm. It's a fine line, especially when your position inherently has the authority of the business behind it. Mm -hmm. The things you say can get taken as coming from the authority of the business rather than An interested, invested, helpful party. It can be herdsdication conversations, but gets really intense about them. It's
1: like, oh, that was not the intent. I wasn't trying to tell you how to do your job. I just was having fun figuring it out. But
0: (laughs) it looked cool. (laughs) Uh, So i've I've got a I've got so many, but I'll try and limit myself to two, which is apparently my favorite number for this podcast. So the first one was a long time ago, and. We were It was at the, the healthcare company, um, and it, we were trying to replace the app delivery platform that we had. It was a, a Windows app that got streamed to our clients. And we quickly realized that the replacement we were trying to put in place had some gaps, and the biggest gap was printing. So with my gung-ho engineer hat, I went and dug into the printing setup and I documented some of the shortcomings and some of the trade-offs that we could make. And I got feedback from a bunch of the product support teams. And I thought I was doing a really good job clarifying and defining the ambiguity and unraveling some of these complex issues. And I presented it to leadership and it did not land at all the way that I hoped it would. It was the, the amount of research that I had done made it seem like a really well-defined, well-scoped problem when really all I had done was highlight how much we didn't know. But it was just, it, it, rather than help clarify how big the problem could be, it made the problem look too small. And then we just ran with that project, um, uh, trying to make it work, even though there were some, some pretty big gaps in there. So that's my first example of trying to help and didn't. My second example is a team that was implementing an SDK and the SDK was doing some pretty low level network processing and uh, they were going to do it in a memory, in a language that wasn't memory safe. So C++ where you could have some security vulnerabilities, you could have some buffer overflows. And I knew that the security team was going to reject it. So being my gung ho little engineer, I ran off and I talked to the security team and I talked to the team again. And I said, you should create a ticket you should get a review. And what I didn't, give enough credibility or, or pay enough attention to was how deeply invested in the chosen solution the team was and that they had already reviewed it with a different group that just had different concerns. So they felt that they had the blessing of the security area and didn't. I didn't acknowledge how seriously they took that and how much more credibility they took on, they put on their first review than on the second one, even though the second one was closer to production and meant that they, they weren't gonna be able to get to production with the solution that they had chosen. So I, you know, my little gung-ho engineer running off and talking to people, I think did help some, but if I had in if I had known to get involved earlier, or I had involved that earlier security team that had given the approval, then I think I could have been a whole lot more helpful than I wound up being.
1: It's just a quicker, effective, yeah. So you might have been yeah. right, but how you handled being right is very much as much of the equation as being yep. right. <laughs>
0: being being right and being effective are not the same thing. They are not <laughs> and I the wish they were. As ever, ever, as nope. Uh, we're think they we're be. coming up on yeah. <laughs> <and> I <laughs> and wish they were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we're running up on time. Any key takeaways or anything else you want to say on this topic?
1: No, I just like I said, I think we're coming to a. Uh, a very familiar theme on a lot of our, a lot of these episodes so far is just the communication um, and the relational aspect of it. Like all of these things are made easier and it doesn't mean buddy-buddy communication and relationship, but it does mean you trust me and I trust you, you have credibility, I have credibility and we can talk things through. And I think when an engineer can give me as a product owner, the credibility to not be dumb and technical and actually say, wait a minute, I know these systems are talking. It doesn't make sense. Or I know X, Y, Z, why, why are we not getting to, you know, this, this, this point they're willing to slow down and talk me through and get me there, knowing that once they get me there, I now have more trust and credibility with them to either take it out or even just put them on the next time. So mm-hmm. it just goes both ways to where if, if we're both willing to slow down, if I'm willing to be better clear in my requirements and what I'm trying to achieve and what we're trying to do, and you're willing to be more clear in how you're solving it, there's just nothing bad that can come from that.
0: Yeah. My my key takeaway is still one of the very first things you said about too much technical detail being a red flag. Mm-hmm. And I'm going back in my head over times when I've done that. And, and occasionally it has been effective where it got the it's conversation moving. Me. It is. It can, it can be, certainly. Okay. Yep. And There's a time I and think, place
1: for it. Don't get me wrong. Sorry.
0: Finish it's a useful tool. Yep. But it is it is making me think through scenarios when that wouldn't have been effective or maybe wasn't as wasn't the best option for me to use is just go all the way to the compiler and start talking about processors and zeros and ones. And but maybe how is
1: that any different? Oh, sorry, I thought you were done.
0: Finish. Maybe finding that balance, finding that middle ground is effective. Yeah. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. As I just say, but it's no different than the product owner coming in saying, I don't have four days to hash this out go make this change now based on my authority as a product owner like there's a time and place for that it's rare it's 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 need to use on delicacy and it, and there's still ways to do that in a clear and effective manner but there are times where something just needs to get done and you know the person who's in charge of the roadmap or in charge of, of what is next is going to make that call same way an engineers can be like now is not the time for me to educate you on how to be a half technical person that you think you are like I know this is broken. I know it's what we need to do. Like, I'm going to talk over your head so you just go away and, and maybe we'll hash up on this in a week or two. Like, There's both places for those time and places for those time uh, uh, those type of responses. Um, it's just how you play those cards and when you play those cards and what have you done in the relationship to that point to make it not the card that you play every time.
0: So. Well said. All right. This Good. has been Learnings from the Middle. Thanks for listening.
1: Bye, guys.